Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Rachio and Satyar Shah. We are in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. It is uh, another sweltering hot day in May here in Vancouver. The only thing hotter than the weather in Vancouver is Artur Silovs with Team Latvia at the World Championships. Man, going to the semifinals of the World Championships. He's going to face Canada. Yeah. Pretty amazing. He's going to beat Canada is what's going to happen. <laughs> Wouldn't put it past them. Who are Canucks fans cheering for? Canada? Are they cheering for Ethan Bear and Tyler Myers? Or are they cheering for <laughs> Artur Silovs? <laughs> Uh, I'd guess they're still che- cheering for the for the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Right? I don't know. No? <laughs> right. I think people like an arty party every once in a while. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, hey, it'd be a great consolation, right? Yeah. For him to go to the final. Uh, it, it is a pretty incredible story with Arthur Silov. So we talked about it yesterday with Kevin Woodley and just sort of the upside mm-hmm. of Arthur Silovs and what the Canucks options are with this player and... As good as everything is, I think everybody needs to pump the brakes on the idea that Artur Silovs is ready for any kind of full-time NHL work. Yeah, I mean, not to spoil the arty party here, but no, and I, I mean, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's, I don't think anybody's really taken aback by that. I yeah. think realistically speaking, this was his first full year playing significant games in North America. Yeah. You know, at any level, let alone mm-hmm. the NHL level. So you're still talking about a guy who who needs starts, needs time, and the best place for him to get starts is still at the AHL level. And you're not going to sacrifice his development to be, you know, a strict backup in Vancouver. He needs to play games. That's what matters, right? Now, the ETA, hey, maybe it's not three years. Maybe it's the year after next season, so two seasons before you can really bank on him yeah. and he starts making headweight. So it's not that far away, for instance. But what I was most let's say, um, encouraged by in terms of his overall potential with what Kevin Woodley had to say was you should not expect by any means, do not expect Arthur Silovs to be Thatcher Demko, the next Thatcher Demko, that type of goaltender. Mm-hmm. But it's not out of the realm of, like, it is within um, the possible outcomes here. Like that, that's a real, there, it is an outcome that is attainable here for Arthur Silovs. And if that's possible with him, well, that means you have a pretty good prospect in that. It's uh, it's really impressive. And for those who may have missed it here on Thursday afternoon, Artur Silovs made 40 saves for Latvia as they beat Sweden in a quarterfinal at the Worlds. He let in just one goal, and Latvia is off to their first semifinal in World Championship history. They will go on to play Canada. Silovs has been their biggest star through the tournament. Um, I think, as always, you know, just – what we said after the season, when we've talked about Silovs, is still the same. You yeah. can't, in the same way that you can't change your idea on a prospect based on the World Juniors or their play at the World Junior or any one tournament, whether it be the U18s or the Ivan Holinka. Mm-hmm. What? Sure, guys can have good good tournaments. Guys can have good stretches. Guys can have a good playoff series, even in the NHL. And you can't like this guy's a completely different player than I ever thought. Like, it's, it's a five game yeah. sample. You know, you can't, you can't live like that. Like nobody's trying to say other than Michael block that he's the best golfer in the world after what he did at the PGA championship. But what you can say with Arthur Silovs is he played five games at the NHL level and acquitted himself pretty well 
as early as this year with a 908 save percentage. I think you can, if you look at gradually growing this goalie into eventually being a starter, what are the next steps? The next steps are maybe he gets a few more games as he's bouncing down from Abbotsford and the Vancouver Canucks as early as this year. And then beyond that, you can start to have a conversation of graduating him to a full-time backup role like Thatcher Demko had here in Vancouver. It's fair to say you have a true succession plan and goal now. Yeah. I had a question about this last year, like even before we saw Silovs and it was so early in his development, you couldn't sit here and say, okay, is he the succession plan? You know, I wonder when when all the conversations were around trading Demko, it's like, sure, but do you even have an internal succession plan? Like is Silovs that guy? Do we know that yet? And hey, maybe we don't know that yet, but we know more in order to say, okay, like that is your plan. It's a viable plan. It looks like right now, you still have to add to your department. You still have to hope a lot of things go right for him, but it seems like you have a succession plan. Now, Brad and Cloverdale says the succession plan is two to three years out when Demers contract gets more expensive. And that's something we discussed yesterday that on, um, I think overrated, underrated, wasn't it? Somebody asked yeah. us about tra- trading Thatcher Demico and make sure to go back and listen to it if you missed it. But I think you're a year out, two years out of really considering yeah. that. But Realistically speaking, are you signing Thatcher Demko when he's 30 years old to a big money extension? Probably not. No, probably not. So that's that's the tough world of goaltending, right? And it's more about what do you want to pay your goaltenders, different types of question marks like that. And I would argue, you know, the the goalies and, and maybe Demko is different because he's an elite goalie on a really good contract. So in theory, teams would probably pay up for that if they're going to really try and acquire a goalie and settle that position on their roster. But generally, the goalies that go for the most in terms of trade value are ones that are still relatively early in their careers, have shown that they have a lot of upside, have played a decent amount of NHL games, and have shown to be that they're ready to take on a full-time starter role, right? Think about uh, Robin Leonard, Martin Jones, Mm -hmm. those types that went for first-round picks. But those were, Corey Schneider, those were years ago. Yeah. And generally, you just don't see that happen. The most recent goalie to get traded for a first-round pick, anybody? Anybody? Peter Morazic. Yeah. And a a first-round pick went with him to Chicago, not for him. Get rid of his contract. (laughs) To get rid of his contract, right? Like, that's... That's what we're talking about when it comes to goalies and trade value. You generally don't find it. But, you know, if Silovs continues on this projection, what it does is it gives the Canucks a ton of options and it gives them another asset in their organization. Yeah. And, you know, it's realistically, we'll have that discussion maybe in a year or two. Uh huh. And we're, we're going to get to some free agents here because we have uh, uh, the daily faceoff projections for the top free agents, which is very interesting. And I think there are a couple of names that are notable that we should dis- definitely discuss when it comes to your Vancouver Canucks. Mm-hmm. But what were we talking about? I just lost my train of thought for a second. Uh, Arthur Silovs. Silovs, yes. But no, we were talking about Silovs, but Thatcher Demko, sorry. The only Trade team, value for yes, goalies. The only team, the only team that could change that is the LA Kings, like I talked about before. That's the only team, right? So that was the team that was kind of hot and heavy talked about around Thatcher Demko when we got closer to the trade deadline. Yes, and... Like we discussed before, the Kings have a lot of everything, right? Mm -hmm. The only question is, 
would Vancouver would Vancouver be willing to take on Cal Peterson's contract? I think that's the only thing that could get in the way of whatever LA Kings could offer to make you. Like I think LA would do like a three piece deal where they offer Hellgate Grons a first round pick and and maybe even a, a decent prospect. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if LA would do something along those lines. Like they have to trade some prospects. They need yeah. a goalie. Demko's the best young, one of the best young goalies. The contract's good. They've been after some other young goalies as well. So don't be surprised if they they are aggressive on it. But I think they're a team that's not afraid of being aggressive like that. The only thing is they need to get money off the books too. Yeah. So again, like even though the LA Kings can offer two or three really good prospects, does it make sense for Vancouver to make that deal now and take on Peterson's contract at five million per season? Like, does it make your team any better? So again, the Demko conversation realistically is a year away or two years away. This, um, you know, the idea of trading Demko happened in the lead up to the deadline after the, you know, as the Canucks moved Horvat, but before they traded for Philip Hronik. And the idea about trading Demko is sort of rooted in you're taking a little bit of a longer term look at how you're going to build this team up. Yeah. I don't, with the idea of going to the playoffs next year, I don't know how that really computes. Like you're going to take on a guy that got, you know, is a $5 million goaltender. So equal to Thatcher Demko and his contract. Yeah. And this player was demoted to the AHL because his team, a really good defensive team, couldn't trust him to play a net for them anymore. I mean, it's just, it's as good as the prospect hall might be. It's a tough pill to swallow for a team that is hoping to go to the playoffs. You can think all you want about the Canucks and, oh yes, they're trying to build an environment that is better for goaltenders, that is more friendly to their goaltender, that they don't have to rely on Thatcher Demko making seven five-alarm bell saves in order for them to win hockey games consistently. But in reality, getting to build that, it's probably not going to happen in one offseason for this team. It comes down to, like if if you were looking at it from a three- or four-year plan and you're taking a longer-term approach, then it's a no-brainer. Yeah, that's like, well, yeah, we'll take the guy on, but maybe we, we, we reclaim him with Ian Clark, flip him in a year. Maybe he's a guy that figures it out. Who knows, right? Plus, we get three great, great, good pieces. It's great. But if that's not your pathway, then it doesn't make sense to fit, right? Unless you find something else. And if you make a swap like that, if you want a more reliable veteran as well, because you can't trust Cal Peterson, then all of a sudden you're spending more on your goaltending. They've said they don't want to spend any more than they are spending on goaltending. Which if is you, basically five million and less than a million on their backup. Yeah. So exactly. six million total we're talking less about. Less than six million total, right? Yeah. Just around that. Exactly. Right. They don't want to spend more than that. Mm-hmm. Now that forces you to spend more than that, which means the cap space you're opening up in other ways now has to also be earmarked on goaltending. It changes the plan. Again, I don't see it being realistic. It's uh it's it can work in theory, but is it realistic? I'm not so sure. And it really ties into you know, what the Canucks' plans are for this offseason. Yeah. Right? So you could talk about these unrealistic ideas, trading Thatcher Demko for a, a future prospect hall and taking on Cal Peterson and, and hope that it might work. You, you, you bet on Ian Clark and, hey, Ian, get the best out of Cal Peterson, yeah. who's been a pumpkin the last couple of years. I, I don't know if you're really willing to bet that. As much as you like Ian Clark, I don't know if you're willing to bet that in your playoff hopes or getting back to the playoffs on that idea. But we do know exactly what the Canucks are targeting to improve or to add in the offseason. It's a third-line center, 
and it's probably another defenseman. Yeah. A functional defenseman, a guy that can reliably kill penalties is one of the first over the boards when you get a two-minute minor and a guy as well on in your third line that can take some of those PK minutes away from mm-hmm. JT Miller and even Elias Pettersson and do the job himself while also being pretty decent at both ends of the rink. If you look at free agency, though, there's not really a ton of options there, Sat, for the Canucks to go out and target for those positions. No, but one thing that's become very clear, like you said, is they are they want a third-line center, they want a lefty defenseman. It seems like the top priority is the centerman. Mm-hmm. Because you've made this point before, they made the heroic deal early, which would have been their big off-season plan. Would have been you got to get another big, you know, defenseman, high-end defenseman. They felt like they got it before, so they they jumped. They the jumped line. the gun. They jumped the line. The gun. Well, I mean, the yeah. gun would be the um, uh, the pessimistic way of saying it <laughs> that, that they rushed into it. Right. Jumping the line would say that hey, they got ahead of it. So it depends on your outlook, right? It's. It, I saw <laughs> enough in Heronix four games that it should be jumping the line. There you go. You there know? you go. So regardless, depends on how you look at it. They got ahead of it or they jumped the gun, but. They, they they already got their big defensive yep. acquisition. The next big acquisition, or at least relatively big acquisition, seems to be the third-line center. And I think part of the urgency in moving out this contract, which they're trying to do, and I don't think it is, I think the stuff we've heard from Powers, and I think uh, I think PJ had wrote an article about how league sources also mentioned that, um, you know, they've heard Vancouver's been talking to, to teams like Chicago about those types of scenarios. And I do believe all that's true. Like I do believe Dan, that they are very open to creative possibilities and they've spoken to different teams about it. So I think that type of scenario, mm-hmm. like powers mentioned, you know, I don't know if, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I don't know if it will happen, but it, it's a realistic thing that could may have been considered. Right. And I think part of the urgency in trying to get ahead of it is so you have some money heading into free agency. Right. And the guy I keep coming back to and looking at that if they do clear the money is Evan Rodriguez. That's the guy I keep looking at free agency, right-handed centerman, a guy Rutherford traded for before. We know they sniffed around him in free agency. If they could clear more money this year, weren't able to sign him. So this past offseason, they were one of the teams that were looking to maybe add Evan Rodriguez if they opened up the money to do so. Yes. And he and he ended up signing for cheaper, two million than he had anticipated. So it created a bit of a. It was you know you could have been in it depending on yep. how much money you could have cleared. Not a ton, but we knew Vancouver was really up against it. That moved Dickinson, you know, so it was very hard for them to even get him to a two million dollar contract. But I think if they clear the money, that seems to be the guy that they're targeting. That would be my guess. Evan Rodriguez, sixteen goals, thirty nine points this past year in sixty nine nice games, and. You know, maybe the the hype train tailed off a little bit, but very similar numbers to what he put up in that breakout year he had in Pittsburgh where Evgeny Malkin was hurt and Rodriguez bumps up the lineup and he starts scoring all these goals and, and Pittsburgh's winning hockey games and he was a big part of it. I don't think the player changed much at all this past season. He still provided that similar level of value to the Colorado Avalanche. It just didn't hit in the same way that it did that first breakout year. But when you look at a projection and and daily faceoff Mm -hmm. did their projections of what it could look like his contract, it is, and they have the projection at three years by $3.7 million. So that would be about 11 million. Yeah. 11 million. I mean, and uh, what he turned down a three-year extension from the penguins last year at 10.5 million. Yeah. 
and obviously got less, but essentially... So still get that. Still get that ballpark. Now, as much as this organization has spoken about getting 27-year-old players and younger, Mm -hmm. this is what I wonder about. Could they, you know, look at it and say, hey, we don't want to sign a guy who's going to be 30 in July to a three-year contract. But the thing I wonder about a three-year contract actually making sense is... Niels Oman, and somebody's texting in and saying, can't Oman be our third-line center yet? That's Keith texting in. I don't think he's ready for that yet, mm-hmm. to be your third-line center. You but, don't want to bank on that going in. Like, if you have playoff aspirations, you're not banking on that going no. into next year. But fourth-line center with, with potential? Yeah, I mean, in two years, could he knock on that door? You have Atu Ratu mm-hmm. that you also have in the fold. I think three years is not long enough to block these guys. I think it buys you time two or three years yep. veteran type of guy as well. Like, I don't love signing. Like, I think it could make sense. That's why I wonder that they would actually be willing to do something like that, despite the fact they've said they want to sign 27-year-olds. I wonder that if that would fit a three-year deal. And because you don't have, like, there's no clear next year or third-line centers on your roster. Like, they need, they have to either sign a long-term, find a long-term fit by making a big trade, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Or they go and sign Enola Charis, which I'm not against, like we spoke about. Like, do, bring one guy in for a year and then see what happens. But if you want stability, maybe you want a guy for two or three years. But he fits everything, doesn't he, in terms of what they need? Right-handed centerman. Yeah. He can kill penalties. Yeah. Has some speed. Yeah. If somebody gets injured in the top six, he can move up and play. Yeah. Produces a little bit. I mean, he kind of fits everything you're looking for for that third-line center. If you have guys, like you want, at the end of the day, you want your prospects to beat the door down. Yeah. Right? And... We didn't see enough from Aturatu to basically pencil him into any kind of a role at the start of next year either. So there's a process there that needs to still happen. They've committed to developing their prospects more at the AHL level. They've been honest about that. They stayed true to those comments through the course of this past season. I have no reason to not believe them wanting to continue doing that going into next year. And right now, you're right. Evan Rodriguez, if unless you're looking at the trade market, Evan Rodriguez is the number one guy yeah. out there that fits the profile of what the Canucks could be looking for. It's either that or the other name that's been thrown out here has been Ross Colton. That's something that uh, Elliot Friedman mentioned, which would have to be trade, but he's an RFA. Yep. And given his production and his potential, like you're looking at two and a half million, maybe three million. Probably a second round pick too. Yeah, or something along those lines, right? That type of prospect from Tampa Bay. For Tampa Bay, right? But he's a lefty, which is fine. I mean, as long as he can be good. I mean, as much as you want a righty center, as long as he can be good and fill yep. your need, then then whatever. But I think that's a type of. I don't think it's just looking at the the cheap one year guys. I mm-hmm. think they're looking at a guy for a couple of years. You know, could it be a Ross Colton type if you clear the space and you trade for him and you sign him? Would it be Evan Rodriguez? Because Rodriguez is the only guy in free agency that that makes sense to me in terms of a a guy you would actually sign to a two or three year deal. And he would fulfill that role. Like I don't think Barbashev's a center. Yeah. Um. You know, I don't. I don't think Max Domi's a center, like a consistent center. Uh, I don't think Bluger is, unless you get him for one million. Bluger's more of a fourth line guy. And I, I mean, I don't mind him being a one year guy. Bring him for one or two years at yeah. one million, and you know he can play the wing if need be, be a thirteen forward. Similar to David Kampf too. Those are one, those are one year guys. Those are kind of stopgap players, which I don't mind, but they're stopgap. Barbashev's yeah. going to get paid, and I don't think he's a center. And they don't have near the offensive upside that uh, that an Evan Rodriguez would provide. Yeah. If you're ranking the the free agent centermen, it's JT Confer, Ryan O'Reilly, Jordan Stahl's not getting uh, like I doubt he's leaving Carolina. Max Domi and, and Evan Rodriguez are probably uh, in a uh, tight race for that third best center on the free agent market. And what that could mean is that Evan Rodriguez gets priced out of the Canucks market. But if you're looking at who 
or which free agent the Canucks might be looking at in the case that they do or are able to open up cap space, Evan Rodriguez is probably the safe bet. He fits it, and uh, the other guy that kind of fits it is Nick Bugstad. Right. Uh, right hand, right hand, Edmonton, a bit bigger. Played Wouldn't pretty be, well with Edmonton. Yeah, had what, 17 goals? Yeah. Right, like had a decent season. These guys kind of fit. He's a little bit older even, Yeah, which is the other kind of wrinkle in it. You doesn't bring be, the same kind of speed. But no, but it has does, size. does have do, size. Yeah, yeah, is a right-handed centerman too, and there are a lot of good things in his game. But, but I think if you're trying to if you're trying to clear money, I think you're looking to make that type of addition. I don't think you're trying to just go and, and sign a guy in the bargain bin. I think you're looking to make a guy, get a guy in for a couple of years to be that be that player for you. Okay, so I, I, I do want to, in this idea that, you know, they're, they're opening up cap space. I, I'm going to pose a question to you because there was an article at The Athletic today that said the Blue Jackets would consider moving the third overall pick. And the idea was with the Calgary Flames for Elias Lindholm, who is an unrestricted free agent at the end of this next upcoming season. Um, what has more smoke to it? The Canucks Blackhawk rumor or this blue jackets considering moving the third overall rumor oh man so aaron port's line uh mentions in a note in julian mckenzie's athletic article like yes. it's you know it's kind of inception here but no it's like so they're both athletic writers right and port's line is the top insider for uh, the columbus blue jackets mckenzie follows and covers the calgary flames yeah so he, he was doing a mailbag and one question was could the flames be able to get the third overall pick from Columbus. So we ask Portsline, and Portsline essentially says, if Lindholm is willing to sign a contract extension, given his chemistry with Johnny Goudreau in the past, yeah. that they would be open as long as they get like a second round pick back or something. You know, which whatever. So like Lindholm and a second, Lindholm plus an extension and a second round pick for the third overall pick. Yes. In a crazy good top five of the draft. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not questioning Portsline's info. Like I think yeah. he's his reporting is legitimate. There's one guy in, in Columbus, and yeah. it's Portsline. Yes. I mean, if Calgary is not doing everything possible to make that <laughs> deal, like to, like today, yeah. and th- th- don't have it done by now, I give him like two for a second round picks. Yeah. Hey, I, I I just freely offer a third. You want a fourth as well? So you get essentially Leo Carlson for an expiring deal that you may not be able to resign. Yes. On a guy that's going to be what seven ish million? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's one of those like, hey, the, like it's legitimate info, but it's kind of Columbus wants to get people like they they want to hook some bait. Yes, and then be like, hey, we're we're trying to move other first round picks, and you know, you you would negotiate something else out there or something like that, because we always hear these rumors about top five picks and everything being you know maybe being available, but that one made me stop in my tracks when I saw it. <laughs> I'm like, wait, they're actually open to trading a third overall pick, and they do it for that. I, uh, this, this is one of those good moments to remind everybody uh, what the last top three pick was that was traded. It was uh, the guy who the Canucks traded. Yes, it was uh, the Vancouver Canucks that acquired those picks when they signed or when they got Henrik and Daniel Sedin with the second and third overall selections back oh, in 1999. Right. Uh, I was thinking of Luke Shen, who was top five pick. Yes. Yes. Uh, but top three pick top three, yes. would be uh, the Canucks in 99. So only been 25 years? Only. Oh, 24. Um, so probably safe to say that the rumor that was floated about the Canucks trying to think creatively about moving one of their less than desirable contracts is probably got more legs to it than this, uh, Columbus one. Yeah. 
Uh, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Harmon Dial is going to join us next on Canuck Central. Breaking down the biggest trends in hockey. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah, we are in the Kintec studio. Uh, it is Hypothetical Thursdays here on Canuck Central. Uh, Keith with this text, J.T. Miller and the 11th overall pick for third overall. Oh, yes, yes. We were just talking about the uh, rumor from The Athletic in uh, yeah. uh, and Aaron Portsline mentioning that Columbus might, might do mm-hmm. third overall for Elias Lindholm. Out of Calgary. And so Keith came with that idea for the Canucks. All right. It's an interesting one, but unlikely. Yes. Uh, all right. Let's bring in our next guest. He is from The Athletic, and he joins us regularly here on Canuck Central. It is Harmon Dial. Thanks for this, Harm. How are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, we're, we're enjoying silly season. Uh, lots, of, lots of great trade rumors and thoughts in uh, – in the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox and a lot of ideas as to what the Canucks might be doing this off season. But we do kind of know what the Canucks off season, at least what their priorities are. You know, if you leave out signing Elias Pettersson to a massive extension, then we know that one's priority number one, but in terms of additions, it's try to find a third line center and maybe add to the defense if you can. Yeah, and even with the add-to-the-defense part, based off of Alvin's commentary during end-of-season availabilities when that question of the blue line was brought up, you heard him speak a lot about the internal guys. He name-checked mm-hmm. a lot of the guys from Abbotsford that, uh, that had come up, um, even arrivals such as Philip Johansson, and it seemed like you know you read between the lines with that and you go, all right, this, this sounds like a general manager who – understands that because of the team's cap situation, they may have to turn to internal internal sort of candidates, especially when in in the organization's mind, you could easily view Heronic as your big sort of uh, blue line upgrade for next season, right? Because nobody expected the Canucks to be uh, making a, making a big trade like that at the, at the deadline. So because of that, it, it definitely seems like 3C is the main sort of priority, and you can see why, right? I think these playoffs have highlighted how important it is to have a third line that can be the key difference maker for you. Because, for instance, you look at uh, Vegas with what William Carlson has done for that third line. Um, I believe it was the second round in the Edmonton series where in head-to-head five-and-five minutes matched up against the mcdavid Drysdale line, the Oilers didn't score a single five-and-five goal. And when you look at the Knights sort of closing out that series, a big reason why they won it is because they they were able to stop Edmonton at 5-on-5, five five, scoring-wise, offensively. And so to have a, a two-way centerman like Carlson in that type of 3C role, essentially, even in the Dallas series, right, that's that's what he's done. He's gone up against Lope Hintz and, um, and slowed those guys down to such a degree that the rest of Vegas's lineup can then make make an impact um, offensively. You mm-hmm. look at then you have Jack Eichel going up against 
the other team's second and third lines and just feasting on that level of competition. It just gives you so many options, even as a coach, for how you can then look at your top players, right? If you're in, in the Canucks' mm-hmm. position, your Elias Pettersons, your JT Millers, and then sort of brainstorm ways to get them out against favorable matchups, especially when you have uh, the last change. So the problem, obviously, is it's hard to find guys like William Carlson. And I don't think the Canucks um, have the, you know, the trade assets or the cap flexibility to acquire a player that's that established. But you also don't want to be in a scenario where, I mean, there's got to be a middle ground between, you know, last year they were rolling the dice with, out of necessity, Sheldon drives for a big period. Um, there's got to be a middle ground between that and a William Carlson, where even if it's a bargain option in free agency or, or the trade market, there's there's got to be something there to ensure that you're not just a two-line offensive team. Well, and, you know, I think part of the urgency, and we'll get to uh, some of the stuff we've heard or we saw from Scott Powers in terms of, you know, using 11 and 19 with Chicago to move off a contract, for instance. But I think part of the immediacy for Vancouver in getting off that salary is to be able to get a player who is maybe a bit more established, right? Whether that's via trade, we've heard Ross Colton's name been thrown out there, and he's the guy who's going to be a free agent. I mean, RFA is going to be probably be commanding somewhere around $3 million. And if you look at free agency, the only guy that stands out to me to fit that role like realistically outside of like Jordan Stahl of course which I don't think it's going to happen but I think a guy like Evan Rodriguez somewhat fits that mold in terms of that type of money I think it would have to be that type of player if you're looking to at least approximate the William Carlson type of impact it would have to be a Rodriguez or a Ross Colton type and even with Colton it's a bit of a projection still yeah absolutely especially because Colton spent a lot of time on the wing I I like Mm -hmm. Rodriguez a lot especially the type of um, addition that he was last summer, right? It was late in, in late in the offseason. Colorado picked him up for around $2 million on a one-year deal. And he was such a versatile piece for them in the middle six, could move up and down the lineup. Um, you know, that's that's a type of bet that um, that I like because even when you look at somebody like, you know, Ivan Barbashev has come up a lot in terms of could he be the type of free agent that makes sense. But you've even seen it now in the playoffs. Barbashev is at his best on the wing. So it's like, if you're yes. going to pay, especially yes. after this type of a playoff run, where he's just gone off offensively, his stock's going up, and teams are going to be paying attention to to that, especially because of recency bias. It's like, you got to be careful about backing up the Brinks truck for a player that is really good, don't get me wrong, but may ultimately be a lot better at wing than he is um, center. And, and then that's where, you know, you look at sort of other options, and it's like, um, you know, JT Conference probably priced himself out of Vancouver's range with the breakout season he had. I mean, maybe you look at um, a reclamation project like a Sean Monaghan, right? Um, Monaghan was really good for Montreal um, right up until he got injured around, I want to say, December maybe. And then for the rest of the year, he um, he didn't come back, right? And that's the type of player where probably has to take a one-year deal to kind of rebuild his value. And you know that if he does if he is healthy, that he's the type of player that, again, what we saw in Montreal in that brief stint, he was not only chipping in with offense, but playing a really reliable two-way style. So it's like, do you roll the dice with uh, with a player like that as at least one of the options that you bring into the fold? Um, because after that, you get into you that after that you get into players that are, you know, might that are still upgrades at the three three C position, but ultimately aren't the best sort of fits there on a good team when you think about let's say like um like a teddy bluger or uh, a nola achari or a nick bukestad right so 
it's it's not going to be an easy need to address for uh, for the Canucks, but you can understand why it's so high on their priority list. Now, uh, we know that in order for them to make any additions, they've got to make some subtractions, certainly on the on the books, Harm. And it's the great question of the offseason. How are the Canucks going to be able to move off of some money? And, and maybe we got some insight earlier this week from your colleague at the Athletics, Scott Powers, theorizing that, that maybe you know, the Canucks and Blackhawks hook up for a trade that sees Chicago move up to 11 essentially taking on one of the Canucks' less desired contracts to do so. Um, What do you make of this type of suggestion, and is it going to take this level of creativity for the Canucks to move off of one of their deals? Yeah, it might. Um, I think it, like for me, I'm not, I don't have a black and white, oh, like I hate that idea or I love that idea. I think my initial thought is I'd be careful, uh, careful about moving back just because at 11, you still have the possibility of picking up, um, in my opinion, considering how strong this draft is, uh, a, a potential star, right? If you hit like that type of player, especially landing on an ELC and potentially making making a high-end impact in two or three years, I mean, that can do wonders, right? If you have um, a, a player doing that at, at peanuts against a cap. So it, it would also sort of like, for example, the I believe the scenario that Scott laid out there had the Canucks... And, and that was obviously purely hypothetical, but it was like a, if they go from 11 to 19th and pick up a second round pick, um, the Canucks do like, and, and then of course, maybe Chicago takes on a Connor Garland. It's like, okay, if you're also giving me a, like giving me a, a second round pick for moving back, then that's a, that's a proposal where all of a sudden I'm, I'm like, I'm a lot more interested in. Like, I think that proposal that Scott had, uh, the way I looked at it was, you know, I'd take that from a Canucks perspective because for moving back eight slots, yeah, I don't love it, but, you know, you still pick up uh, a second-round pick and, you're, and you'd be getting a really good prospect in that type of range when you don't have your own second-round pick. Um, plus, you get off of some money. Like, that that specific proposal I thought was pretty Canucks-friendly. Um, so I'd pull the trigger there. But in general, it, it, I think it, it really just comes down to, to the specific parameters and you know, like my initial thought was, you know, if I'm Chicago, um, if anything, I was thinking like that's not enough for for me to for me to take a, a contract on given the climate. But um, we'll see. I think one of the most interesting storylines to watch for when it comes to this idea of can the Canucks move contracts out is, um, you know, similar to last offseason, how many attractive sort of high-end wingers are going to be available in the trade market, mm-hmm. and and how many teams have the need for scoring wingers because. We know this year is a pretty weak free agent class, which obviously helps the Canucks because it means teams looking for wingers might be more inclined to to go the trade route. But that's where you're going to be looking at. Okay, is Alex DeBrinket, for example, going to be on the trade market? Um, trade market again. You're going to be looking at, um, at at a lot of teams as sort of cap cap crunch situations, and and um, you know part of the Canucks' leverage in this is is going to be how many teams wind up in a situation where they're shopping wingers that they otherwise you know would not you know have available i mean again you know oliver burkstrand becoming available out of nowhere because columbus all of a sudden had the opportunities opportunity to sign uh goodrow and uh good branson so i think part of the market for sort of dictating how easy it will be for the kind of smooth money mm-hmm. will hinge on 
factors outside of the Canucks' control. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, the question is going to be, what is it going to take to move off that salary? And, and I think in terms of the types of additions, like we mentioned, it's, it's a third-line center. And on defense, I think if they do add somebody on defense, it would have to be somebody not making a lot of money and somebody who is good at maybe killing penalties. But it's essentially a third-pair defenseman who can play a role for you on the PK, right? They can take away some pressure from some of the other guys. And I think you're at a point where the best thing you can hope for from all these moves, um, harm in my estimation, is, yeah, you get a third-line center. It's a third-line center at the end of the day. You get a, another penalty killer on the back end. It's another penalty killer. It's, they're, they're not like you know these, these massive difference-making superstar guys. But I think it's, it's to the point you made earlier in terms of trying to set your roster a bit better. I think if you can have a more efficient roster, because I see people texting in like Chris saying, well, what if they get two good wingers and you can prop up your third-line center? The whole point of getting another third-line center is to take pressure away from JT and Pedersen, is to take away pressure from those guys on the PK, to allow those guys to play different roles. Like, How much more efficient are you as a team if you can just simply slot guys into proper roles and just let, let guys do things they're better at doing more consistently? Absolutely. That's a great point because you look at going into... A- this past season, for example, you know, JT Miller is, we know he's tremendous offensively, but because of the Canucks' lack of a high-end sort of two-way centerman in the 3C position, all of a sudden you're thrusting him into a matchup role, asking him to defend against the opposition's best players. Like, that's not the type of role that JT is best suited for, right? And if you are able to bring in, you know, like, it, a lot of this would have, you know, been solved if, you know, the initial, for example, Jason Dickinson trade had just worked out, right? Because that's yeah. what, and it's so unfortunate that didn't work out because on paper, like Dickinson had done that role so well in Dallas. It's sort of like, a, we don't need you to score score a lot of points and, and produce offense, but just come in and, you know, help on the penalty kill a little bit at five on five, take away some of the matchups burden. And, you know, like, you know, that would have done wonders, right? Because all of a sudden then you have JT sort of um, in a position where, he doesn't have to worry so much about playing against Connor McDavid, right? I, I think about the season opener, right? And it's like he's having the matchup against McDavid and Drysaddle. And, and in my head, it's, you know, out of necessity, you can understand why. But I, I, the way I look at it is I'd much rather have JT going up against the other, the other team's second line and putting him in a position where he isn't preoccupied about, okay, how do I stop McDavid? Or... Uh, Vegas is in town. How do I how do I stop Jack Eichel? I want him to be focusing on offense because that's what he's best at, right? So, it, I mean, there's no doubt that being able to slot guys into appropriate slots, if you're able to acquire a 3C, will help a lot. Not to mention, I think going into next season, a big part of it is just you're going to be banking on, hopefully, obviously, Heronic making in, making a significant impact, right? I, I think that's... can't forget, You can't forget about that, even though that move was made at the deadline. But also hoping for internal internal improvement out of guys, right? Um, there is up sort of untapped upside when you look at players like Pod Colson and, and Hoaglander, and you talk about building on a third line that can really be a difference maker. I mean, that's going to be part of it is, can those types of guys, like a Hoaglander or Pod Colson, like the Cucks don't need them to be, you know, players that put up 50, 60 points in, in a top six role. Even, even if you chip in with 30, 40 points and you play responsible two-way hockey in a third line, like that's huge, that's massive especially if the Canucks this offseason ship other wingers out. Um, and, and so beyond that, even the aspect of having all of the Canucks is like getting the best version of JT Miller, the version that we saw under Rick Tockett for a full season, that'll help a lot. Um, and I think that's, that's where when I look at this offseason, 
you know, I'm not expecting, you know, like game changing sort of moves here. I think this is a case where you're expecting a couple tweaks to maybe help the depth of your roster. And then you're hoping that you can take the, take some of the talent that you already had and that you can just extract more out of it. So when we, um, you know, we were just talking about the draft and I know you wrote about uh, Matt Vey Mitchkov recently and could he be the best Russian prospect since, since Alex Ovechkin. I, and this may be one of the reasons you don't necessarily want to move down from 11 because there is this wild and crazy possibility that a talent like Matt Vey Mitchkov, because of the uncertainties standing around that player, like he, he may end up there available for the Canucks to select at 11. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I wouldn't expect it, but is it, you know, out of the realm of poss- possibility? I mean, sure, it's, it's a long shot, but it's possible. And you're right. I mean, a player like Mitchkov, he, he's so interesting because it seems like there are some sort of question marks beyond just the Russian factors, right? Like beyond just the, oh, he's stuck in the KHL for at least another three seasons, beyond the geopolitical concerns, you look at like I, I do think that some sort of talent evaluators look at first of all the fact that he's five ten um, and a winger and sort of not only wonder about the size but also about sort of the translatability of of his game. I mean, even when you look at his point totals, it was interesting. I, I had somebody reach out and sort of point out that hey, he he's had to put up twenty points in twenty seven games in KHL, which is the most in league history of, of any sort of draft eligible prospect, you know, but that person pointed out that eight of those 20 points were against one team, the Cleveland red stars and that the goalie they had, um, you know, the, the person reaching out to me cracked a joke and, and, and said that he couldn't stick it in professional hockey anywhere <laughs> or like he shouldn't. Right. Um, so it's like, even with the numbers there, it's like, you're, you know, there's, there's reason for some concern, which, you know, maybe it amplifies the the probability that he's available at eleven. And and I'll say this, man, if, if Mitchkov's there at eleven, you have to take him. Like you have yeah. to, in my opinion, roll the dice because um, even with some of the concerns I mentioned, you're talking about a player that production-wise has like this is a player in, uh, that as a draft eligible outproduced Panarin, outproduced Kaprizov, outproduced Tarasenko. Um, you look at his. You look at just like I spent a lot of time watching his tape, um, and you're you're talking about a player that okay even outside of you know a couple uh, a couple of feasting on bottom feeder teams, this is a player that was still productive in a top six role in the second best league in hockey despite being a small undersized guy. So it's like a lot of people might look at his size or, or size and the translatability and go ooh will that translate? But it's like we're not talking about a guy that put up you know, 150 points in junior. We're talking about a guy that has been productive against men already. And if anything, I look at that and go, okay, once he's had a chance to physically develop, once he's stronger, um, you know, is there like, what could he look like once he's got a man's body, right? Especially when it comes to how much it could help his skating, how much it could help his ability to win battles. And um, beyond that, when you look at his combination of um, elite the elite sort of vision that that you see, the offensive creativity, um, the edge work that he has, the puck skills, the, the dangling. It's like, man, if he if he if he's available at eleven, even though you have to wait, like that. This this is the type of player that could be a franchise winger. I, I seriously, I watched him and I go like, I see shades of Nikita Kucherov in the way that Mitchkov plays. 
Well, and I think the Kucherov thing, I think, is is really fascinating because he was also a guy for different reasons that was overlooked a little bit. But in terms of the overall, you know, you know quality, it just stands out. Now, the one guy I also want to ask you about is Will Smith, because it keeps I keep hearing and I saw your colleagues, Corey Promen and also um, Scott Wheeler that did a mock draft and they had Columbus taking Will Smith at number three. Is he going to be the guy that kind of surprisingly moves up? It kind of reminds me, for, for the longest time, we were talking about back in, what was it, 20, 2016, we kept talking about Matthews, Priyarvi, and uh, Patrick Laine, and then Pierre-Luc Dubois ends up going a bit higher. Is Will Smith going to be the guy that kind of breaks up the top three this year, maybe? Yeah, it's it, it definitely feels like he's gained a lot of um, traction after the, the U18s. And certainly when you have players that gather a lot of late buzz, I mean, I even think about Mason McTavish, how early he went um, to Anaheim when this was a player that initially people looked at, okay, could he be, could he be available, you know, 8, 9, 10, and then he, I think he went third overall or something. Like, he, he went a lot earlier than people expected, and, um, you know, that's the sort of momentum Smith seems to have. Um, and having said that, I think overall it'd be, um, you know, I'd be very wary of that. I think, you know, Will Smith's an unbelievable prospect. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think teams should sleep on Leo Carlson um, when it comes to his combination of size and producing against men in the SHL, the division, the and he's just such a beast in that way. And, and you look at the strong uh, tournament that he had, obviously Sweden just got eliminated um, uh, against Archer Silovs in Latvia today, but uh, Leo Carlson looked really looked really strong in that uh, in, in these World Championships as well overall. So for me, if I'm looking at it, I don't think that he should be in the top three. Uh, but after that, once you get into like four or five, like I, I'd be very surprised if if he's on the board past the four or five range. And um, you would you wouldn't have said that maybe two or three months ago. Harm, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canucks Central. And, yeah, I, you know, the, the idea of the draft is fascinating. I think the Will Smith thing, um, it seems like there's just a lot of wanting to have conversation about the top three right now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, this is what I would say. Don't be surprised if we see surprises. Like, I know Leo Carlson couldn't score on Artur Silovs, because who can? Yeah, I mean, nobody can. Uh, but, like, I mean, his his world championships as a draft-eligible oh, yeah. player have been super impressive. They have been. I mean, but all it takes is the one team that values this guy. Right. And, and I think Will Smith's a guy that, that is gathering up a lot of steam, and I don't think it's just because of, you know, people on the outside hyping him up. I think the reason you're hearing a lot of it is teams that are high in the draft like him. Mm-hmm. You know, now, now maybe Columbus likes Carlson better but they had in their mock them taking Will Smith over Leo Carlson which kind of had me flabbergasted but then you know I asked around a little bit and it's like it's like yeah I mean consensus everybody says Carlson's the better prospect but I I don't think it's as ironclad as maybe we assumed the top three yeah which is uh which is interesting and and the the thought on Mitchkoff you know Look, I know it is a long shot, as some of our texters continue to point out. Uh, there's no way Mitch Koff gets past Detroit or Washington. Impossible. Uh, look, it, it is unlikely that Mitch Koff falls out of the top 10 because he is that level of a talent. But because of the uncertainty, there does remain a slight chance we see him fall farther than anybody would have expected. Yes. And 
That's the argument you were trying to make earlier this week when we talked about moving down in the draft to move off of a Garland contract or something like it's at. Do you really want to move off of 11 in case a Benson or Mitchkoff or one of these really high-end yeah. prospects ends up falling out of the top 10? I mean, you, you can make a great argument that you're getting surplus value. Yeah. Like if Vancouver is getting 35 and a 19 to do it, like you can say that from the draft value chart, like you're getting more draft value out of it. And, and that analytically is true and fine. You can, you know, you can take that and go to bed and feel good about it. But there's no way you're getting the better prospect. Well, you're, I'd say you're, you're less likely to get, better, better, to get the better prospect. Yes. You have less players to choose from. And like, why, why punt on that chance? Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you really believe that this group is 20 deep and you're like, hey, we really don't worry about anybody in this, in this 20-player group. And we've heard it go be, be that deep. Maybe Vancouver is a team that views it that way. But again, I'd like to stay at 11. Uh, it is Canuck Central as uh, we continue here. Josh Yoey is going to join us. Out of Pittsburgh, the uh, latest team to enter the who's the most dysfunctional in the NHL? Yep, might be the Pittsburgh Penguins with how things unfolded over the last little while. And maybe Kyle Dubas is the one being selected to fix it all. We'll talk to Josh Yoey next on Canucks Central. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. It is our number two of the show. If you missed earlier in the show, we had uh, Harmon Dial of The Athletic talking about Canuck's offseason plans and also you know, what it could look like for Evan Rodriguez to be a potential target for the Canucks in free agency. Evan Rodriguez, a former Pittsburgh Penguin and Pittsburgh very much in the news as their general manager search continues. And uh, some more details of a little bit of fallout from their prior front office regime continues to come out. And one of those writing about that at The Athletic is Josh Yoey, who joins us now. Thanks for this, Josh. How are you? Yeah, my pleasure. Good. How are you? Uh, we're, we're good. You know, here in Vancouver, we thought uh, the, the Canucks were the only uh, dysfunctional franchise through the course of this season, but uh, <laughs> apparently that's not the case. Uh, things things got pretty wild there in Pittsburgh. Well, they did, and it, it's funny because it, it wasn't that way in Pittsburgh for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't just say that because the Penguins won a bunch of championships in the last 15 years, but uh, it's always been... A, a stable organization, really in the Crosby era, um, both on and off the ice. I think everybody knew their roles, and everybody did what they were supposed to do for the most part, and it was a very functional organization. And uh, the last couple of years uh, under Brian Burke and Ron Hextall, um, yeah, things uh, went went a little uh, haywire, quite frankly, and and. Uh, Rob Rossi and I wrote the article about it that mm-hmm. ran on The Athletic yesterday. And yeah, so it, it's been a wild couple of years in Pittsburgh, no question. Uh, now, now, just to kind of bring you back to Vancouver, I mean, was any of this, did, did, 
was any of this was anything a precursor when we saw Rutherford leave? Like was was that an indication of things maybe changing on a higher level and or is that just a, a say one off personal situation? Well, you know, I've asked Jim many times why he left Pittsburgh and there's a lot of different reasons that he gives. It's always kind of minor stuff. Um, there's still an error of mystery to why he suddenly left. Um, you know, you, you'll hear the name David Morehouse come up a lot. He mm-hmm. was the president of the Penguins at the time. He now actually works for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, David, you know, a lot of people will tell you was not an easy guy to work with. Uh, he liked to meddle in the hockey business a lot of the time, but that wasn't really his job. Um, perhaps that played a role to some extent. Um, but, uh, you know, Jim's departure, I think, had nothing to do with some of the other stuff that we're talking about. I, I don't think there was that much dysfunction, really, until Jim left. And I, I don't know how people feel about Jim in Vancouver. Feelings, uh, even though a lot of people were upset that he left. Mm-hmm. Um, while he was in Pittsburgh anyway, um, things were pretty functional and pretty steady. And really, it was when he left that I think things really started to get a little out of hand. You know, it, you know, for a team that's been, um, as you, you know, as 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 we know and as we've seen through the championship years and essentially through the entire Crosby era, seemed so well run and and uh, among the most functional in in the National Hockey League. It is crazy to hear some of these details that were in the story that you and Rob wrote. And you know what, I I, I kind of wonder, you know, how. Sid feels about all of this and how that threesome of Sid Malkin and Latang, you know, they get signed back last year and it's like, all right, they're doing it. The the last dance with the big three in Pittsburgh. And yet, um, you know, that was just not the case with how the front office was going about things. Well, you know, I, I don't think Sid and Evgeny Malkin and Crystal Tang have any issues with the current ownership, the Fenway Sports Group. I mean, they've certainly spent the money, and I think everything's fine with them. Now, Sid's relationship with Ron Hextall, um, it wasn't bad, but from what I have understood, it just didn't really exist. Um, you know, Ron Hextall kind of like the sit in his office and not talk with anyone all day. That's what he did. And that was always the word on him in Philadelphia, too. Um, that, that he didn't have the greatest of communication skills. And the thing about Sidney Crosby, he's not the kind of guy who is going to make orders. And I can tell you, there have been stars in Pittsburgh in the past. Um, Mario Lemieux and Yarmer Yager had many a coach fired in their day. Um, they, they would have their buddies traded to the team on occasion. Um, you probably saw the same thing with Gretzky in the later years when, when he was uh, gone from Edmonton. A lot of the Oilers, would, the old Oilers, would show up on you know St. Louis or New York or L.A. Um, Sid's not like that, but he likes to be included. He likes to know what's going on. Uh, that's really all he asked for. And he and Jim Rutherford used to have meetings and just talk about the team, and and Jim would kind of fix it. He'd like that. He appreciated that. Ron Hextall never did that. And the big three, Crosby, Latang, and Malkin, they never knew what was going on or what trades were about to take place or, or what really the direction of the front office was. And that absolutely became a problem at some point. 
Well, and you know, one of the things that really stood out in you guys' reporting, and it was great, very detailed reporting too about some of the conversations that were going on. And just in terms of, we're seeing a lot of these front off. Uh, these ownership groups change and it's far more corporate and the expectations they have in terms of presentations and, you know, Hextall being unprepared in terms of uh, having a proper presentation on paper or PowerPoint and just how he operates. Uh, how big a shift is happening across the league in terms of the expectation of a general manager and a hockey CEO? Cause it's not really the, the old school way of doing things anymore, is it? Oh yeah. Things have changed. And uh, I'm sure you and Vancouver are very well aware that the Penguins mm-hmm. are in talks with Kyle Bu- Kyle Dubas, uh, clearly trying to make him their next general manager. And I bring up his name because when I think of Kyle, I think he's kind of the poster child for the younger generation, for how it does things with analytics and and you know everything mm-hmm. we know about you know Kyle Dubas and, and you know people his age, this generation that is kind of taking over front offices. And you're right, there are still some old-school people in the league. And I think that was one of the problems. Ron Hextall was so old-school, as the the story we told uh, in the article, the Penguins had organizational meetings in Florida a couple of years ago, and uh, or just last year, rather. And Fenway Sports Group uh, people, the Penguins ownership group, they asked Hextall what his plan was, and that they wanted to see it on paper. And his response to them was, well... I, it's kind of in my head. I, I, I don't have it on paper. Yeah. And they said, well, we'd like to see it on paper if, if you don't mind. And I don't think he had much of a plan, and I think that was the <laughs> mm-hmm. problem. And I will say, um, in Hextall's defense, what he was asked to do when he took over the job was not reasonable. Um, you know, the Penguins, when he took over, and that was before Fenway Sports Group, on the team that was still Mario Lemieux and Ron Burkle and David Morehouse. Uh, they asked Ron Hextall, Hey, they said, we want you to win another Stanley cup for us, but we also want you to simultaneously build our system up. And that's almost impossible. Yeah. And I think Hextall tried to kind of pull off both. And as expected, he, he didn't pull off either because that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. You can't be uh, two things at once as we've seen in, in the NHL and the way things set up in a, in the salary cap era. So you mentioned Kyle Dubas. Um, what is it specifically about Dubas that, that Fenway sports group is really, uh, is really intrigued about? Well, I, I think it's just his general approach and I Fenway, um, they love analytics people. That's who they like to put in charge of all of the other teams they own. I, you know, John Henry is, you know, founder of Fenway Sports Group. There's the, you know, the famous scene in Moneyball when, when you know Brad Pitt's playing Billy Bean and he tries to recruit him to the Red Sox. Like even back then, that that analytical way of thinking is just something that really appeals to them. And the Penguins don't really have an analytics department. It's very tiny. Um, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke were never particularly interested in using it. I don't know how interested Jim Rutherford was. Mm. Um, maybe he listened to them at times, but he certainly also made signings that I know for a fact the analytics department wouldn't have been very happy about. I mean, Jim signed Jack Johnson and Eric Goodbrands into contracts. Mm. Analytics people hate them. Yes. So, um, But the Penguins want to move in that direction. They just want a younger person with vision, with an understanding of analytics, and a, just a more modern way 
to run a hockey team, and I really think they have long identified Kyle as the best candidate. They weren't expecting him to be available. I think they were very close to naming someone else their general manager about a week or ten days ago, and then all of a sudden the Shanahan Dubas situation takes place, and what do you know, Kyle Dubas is a free agent. That was the guy they always wanted, and they've been talking with him ever since. Mm-hmm. Well, in in fairness to um, Kyle Dubas, I mean, he could be in it for a number of different reasons. But, but the question would be about Pittsburgh because because of the age range here for Sidney Crosby and Malkin, you're talking about a couple of years and probably a rebuild. Like this wouldn't be like a one or two or three year plan. Like this would have to be like a big long term undertaking. And what would be the biggest draw for this job? Would it have to be the money? Would it have to be the autonomy? Like, what do you think would make this would convince Dubas to take the job potentially? Well, it's a great question because, you know, 10 years ago, you would have said, boy, that might be the best job mm-hmm. in all of hockey to be Sidney Crosby and Kenny Malkin's general manager. Um, but they're no longer in their primes. And that's undeniable. Um, now, there are some perks to this job. Fenway Sports Group has a ton of money. I, I'm sure Kyle would be compensated far better than he ever has been. And you do get to work with Sidney Crosby. He's 35. He's still really great. I mean, he's still someone who puts up 100 points a season who might be the best captain in the sport. Um, that's a pretty nice foundation for the team to have, and, and I still think he's going to be a great player for a handful more seasons. And I guess the other thing in terms of building a team in terms of the short term, well, the Penguins do have over $20 million in salary cap space to spend this summer, so they can make some changes, some short-term fixes, but you're right. Um, the fact is uh, this is a team whose trajectory is pointed downward. They might make a few moves and make the playoffs in the next year or two. Uh, boy, a lot of things would have to go right for them to go on a Stanley Cup run in the next couple of years. So I don't know what appeals to Kyle. If he would, if there's a part of him that would enjoy kind of a quick rebuild, I I don't know. He's not used to that, of course. Toronto's been a, a legitimate contender for years now. Um, but I will, I will say this, too. Uh, maybe they're not the Maple Leafs, but the Penguins are still a pretty prestigious organization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, I think they're one of the most important American markets. And you're working with Sidney Crosby and a great coach in Mike Sullivan. So there are still some pluses there. Yo, there certainly are. Now, has one thing been determined, though, that the Pittsburgh Penguins where will in no way, shape, or form talk trade about JT Miller again? Like, is that done? Can we Can we put that to bed? Well, you know how it is when you're dealing with a player who happens to be from a certain region. Yeah. And uh, JT's from about 45 minutes away from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, I don't know how serious those talks were. I I know it came up. I don't think it really got all that close to happening. I'm curious to see how that goes in the future. Um, I was just chatting with Rick Tockett a couple of weeks ago about the Canucks and Boy, he loves J.T. Miller. I mean, he really does. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, 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 he's just got the personality that I think Rick loves. He thinks he's a great player. Um, I, I'm guessing you will not hear any more about J.T. Miller to Pittsburgh because while the Penguins do have some cap space, they don't have that much. And that's a really big contract, and they need to get younger. And J.T. is not old, but I think he is what, 30 now or will be 30 soon. Um, they need to get some players in their 20s. There were a couple of games last year when 16 of the 20 Penguins who were dressed were 30 years or older. It's way, way too old. Uh, before we let you go, you, you mentioned uh, Rick Tockett. Um, 
how does like what are what are your memories of Rick Tockett as a as an assistant coach, and how does he strike you as as a head coach? One of my favorite people in the world. I, you know, I think the jury is still out on him as a head coach. He's been in some pretty tough situations. Uh, you certainly saw Vancouver, I thought, get better late last season. Yeah. Um, in Arizona, I mean, it was such of a mess in Arizona. I I don't know how you gauge what he did there. I can tell you, he's almost without question the best assistant coach I've ever been around. And if you ask Sidney Crosby or Evgeny Malkin what coaches over the years they like playing for, they don't even mention successful head coaches like Dan Bilesma or Michael Terrian. They will immediately say Mike Sullivan and Rick Tockett. Those were their two guys. Um, those two respected Rick Tockett so much. Um, and, and listen, Crosby's a great guy, but great players aren't always easy to coach. A lot of coaches don't have the respect. Mm-hmm. Mike Johnston never did when he was the head coach in Pittsburgh. Rick Tockett, he had their respect from day one. Crosby, Malcolm, will tell you, they swear by Rick Tockett. Uh, they really do. So I, I think Rick knows the game really well, and I think he knows how to deal with a range of personalities. I, I hope uh, people in Vancouver are patient with him. Mm-hmm. I know it's a rabid market that wants to see results <laughs> right away, but I, I really do think Rick knows what he's doing. Uh, Josh, really uh, really appreciate your time, and uh, again, great work on the, on, the, on the piece over at The Athletic. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Anytime. Uh, there is Josh Yoey of The Athletic, and again, if you have yet to see it, uh, it is uh, good to sit over a cup of coffee, maybe a nice little spro, and read uh, the lengthy piece they wrote on uh, the downfall of Ron Hextall and Brian Burke as the Pittsburgh front office. Just good, good journalism. You yep. know, it's it's like really detailed. To be able to get that type of detail from conversations in the front office with mm-hmm. whom was who was in the room and what was said, and for it to be verified that way, it's it's really good journalism, and it shows you that it's stuff that you get from the principles or stuff that's been really double and triple verified. It's when I read something like that, it's super engrossing, and it just shows you still. As much as it's being devalued, like proper journalism, even in sports, does matter, and that's a great piece. I don't think Chat GPT can write something like that. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe in the future. I don't know. Everything might be possible. I don't know. Like even like I was like, hey, even we're like, at least we got personality. <laughs> um, like I don't know. I mean, and these computers can be personable too. I think it, it is interesting uh, to hear about Rick Talk, and it's nothing that we hadn't heard. Before and we talked yeah. about this when Rick Tockett was, you know, becoming the obvious next head coach of the Vancouver Canucks and eventually announced as the head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. But his time in Pittsburgh is what earned him such a massive and strong reputation around the league as an up and coming coach. Yeah, and and I mean, if you look at it from every team, he's been like fully coached. I mean, the Tampa team was the first team he kind of coached and go back to it too. But even there, you talk, you hear from the players that he coached and everything. But what he coached in Arizona, look at the rosters and look at the results he got with those rosters. Yeah. And how hard those teams played. I mean, I think that's the biggest indicator of a coach being successful, right? Or being effective is how invested are your players consistently. And on pretty lackluster Arizona teams, yeah. they were always consistently punching above their weight. And maybe punching above their weight was just being 500 or slightly below, mm-hmm. but those were years where you thought they would be dead last and yeah. they'd still be able to be competitive. And uh, found a way to coach up defense. And it's one of the things that this Canucks team has really had a trouble with in the last uh, number of years. So 
you know that that's always been a storyline with uh with Rick Tockett. The other one you know on on the next general manager and and how Pittsburgh is maybe the the worst kept secret that they've clearly identified mm-hmm. Kyle Dubas as the guy they would like should he choose to take the job. Um you know I guess the best way to describe it is he's a collaborator. And you know reading some of the stories that have come out about Dumas and you know there's another story at the Athletic today that mentions just how distraught the Toronto front office is because of Dubas's departure coming out of left field. Everybody's job is all of a sudden you know not up in the air. And you're not right. sure the new guy's going to have you still here. But yeah, he built a uh, culture of collaboration. Is the takeaway that I get from what I hear coming out of Toronto and yeah. you know, empowering people to do whatever job it is they were hired to do to the best of their ability and not keeping people in silos. And I think that's, you know, sort of a, uh, more of a, a modern way of looking at front offices. You know, I think that's an excellent point. And oftentimes what you hear when we say, Hey, modern general managers, like, Oh, analytics, here's an analytics guy. And it's like, analytics is just a small portion of it, man. Like, yes. like, you know, and you know, we joke about me becoming more of a hockey man as I get older and older and stuff like that. Sat so, I mean, hockey man, TM, <laughs> put it next to his name, put it in his Twitter bio. But I mean, I, I mean the evaluation, like, yeah, you don't, you don't make the analytical aspect bigger than the eye test. Like they're all important aspects of it. But I think the most important part of when we talk about a new age front office is more about, like you said, how you're a leader how you operate a business Mm -hmm. and how many avenues are you opening up to yourself to make better decisions? Yes. That's that's the most simple thing, the best way to do it. It's like, can you empower people to do their job, to give you information that informs you in a way to make better decisions? That's all it is. Yeah. Like it, we don't need to overcomplicate things. That's what a new age, you know, front office looks like. It's really not groundbreaking, but it's stuff that is now being expected and it's being set as standards. Like you have to be able to operate this way because people go to school to learn how to operate that way. Yep. You know, it sounds simple, but it's like, yeah, you know, proper leadership, running a business, getting people in proper roles, getting their information in, disseminating that information, understanding how to process it and how to move it forward, who to get guidance from, the legal team. You have to take all these things into consideration to inform your decisions, right? And that's what a new age front office looks like. So forget the analytics part. It's only a minor part of it. It's uh, it is what Jim Rutherford has been trying to build as the president of hockey ops in Vancouver. Obviously, you know, we're a year and a bit in and there hasn't been a ton of team success yet, but that's what he was tasked with building here in Vancouver. And we're still waiting. But you got to give it at least three to five years to see if it's actually going to work. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's not like there hasn't been any drama here. No, there's you definitely know, been a lot of drama. We, we, we've we also spoken about as much as, you know, Rutherford's an experienced leader and all that. It wasn't like it was quiet this year. No. And from a PR <laughs> aspect, probably can learn a thing or two. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't run perfectly. Well, and he's but, now just decided to not speak at all. Which so. is, I mean, and how much quieter are things? <laughs> right? I guess that's true. <laughs> like, how much quieter are things? Very, very quiet. Um, I wonder who he is, like, getting angry with, you know? Is it just... Anyways, yeah. uh, it's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canuck Central.